Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Claire McKenna. You're welcome to Changemakers, the podcast series talking to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation to reframe how we think, the information we share and the conversations we go on to have. We can all be part of the change process. Today's episode features someone I'm proud to call my friend, Riyad Khalif. We met a few years back when we worked at the same radio station in Dublin. I'd been there for a few years at that stage. I think I had a baby or two. And he was the next generation on the way in, embracing the new online age, going most places with a video camera in tow. He had his own YouTube channel and buckets of enthusiasm. I told him then that he had something special, so watching his star ascend since then has come as no surprise to me. His YouTube channel followers hit 378,000 subscribers, where he shares honest accounts of life, love, coming out and reading mean tweets. His video where his mum reads out his grinder messages has over 5 million views. He has a gift of interweaving important topics with laugh out loud humour. He headed off to London where he has worked at BBC Radio. He's a reporter for The One Show. He won Celebrity MasterChef and remains a huge social media star. He still has so many plans for documentary making and he's living his best life, travelling on dance floors and he shares a cat called Claire with his partner Josh. I never did ask about that bit in the interview, but I'm not offended. I'm a massive cat person and boy is Claire a beauty. Riyadh is a change maker because he has taken what shouldn't ever have been taboo and hauled it into the mainstream. He has taken abuse for it along the way, but he's only used that to power him on. The messages he gets of thanks far outweigh any trolling he's ever received and his book Yay You're Gay Now What has sold around the world. Empathy is said to be one of the key components of a change maker and what Riyadh has to say about empathy in this conversation gave me goosebumps. He makes the world a better place. I hope you enjoy. You're very welcome to Changemakers. Thanks, Claire. Great to be chatting to you. Did you set out to be a change maker? do you think, Riyadh? If you mm. think about you growing up and, and going to school, did you have any motivation to become a, an activist or an advocate? It's a really good question. I think um, I always say I became an accidental ad- uh, activist or advocate. It was completely not the plan because when I was in school, my only uh, goal was to survive, really. It was to get through the bullying and get through the um, shame that I had, you know, with feelings around being gay and being different. And it, it, it very sort of low level hopes and aspirations for me. It was just sort of get through this. Don't be sort of caught out for this dark secret that you have and 
just sort of take it a day at a time. And then the minute I started to kind of accept myself and I began making content online, um, I had all these people around the world that I'd never met reaching out and saying, oh, um, that video you made really helped me to come out to my mom or I stopped self-harming today because I saw that you could be LGBT and happy or um, the way that you talk to your mom and dad in um, that podcast really gave me hope that I could someday have that too and I had this epiphany I was like all right okay so this very selfish thing that I was doing just to kind of have a creative outlet and a voice is now actually impacting other people's lives in a positive way hmm and it kind of aligned with the marriage equality referendum in, in Ireland. And I kind of looked at myself at the, where I had come to uh, in terms of uh, acceptance, looked at the platform that I accidentally had created and looked at the issues that were in my world, which at the time, like I said, was marriage equality. I thought there's something here that can be leveraged. And that was kind of the begin the beginning of it, really. Because sometimes I wonder um, for for people like you, is there a battle to just want to fit in like everybody else Mm. and then want to be celebrated for for who you are? You you don't really want to be known as different in inverted commas. And then you're kind of speaking out. So it's kind of like a a battle in a way to, to blend in and speak out. It is. It's complete polar opposites. It's the juxtaposition of my entire life. It's, you know you grow up just please let me fly under the radar yeah I want a couple of friends I want to be able to you know have a job that I like one day but I really don't want any undue attention um and then I think what happens is now this is for any person that strives for a job in the public eye I think we we grow up looking to kind of edit contort and and deflect attention for whatever reason for me it was the bullying And then when you reach a certain age, you actually have this um, deficit of uh, self-awareness, deficit of validation, um, and you try to find that in other ways. And for me, I absolutely know through many, many years of therapy (laughs) that the reason why I've I've sought this career is because I, I need people to tell me, you're grand. You not only are you grand, but you're actually really good at what you do. And we like it and we will applaud you for it maybe that's really unhealthy but I've I I feel like I've now found this balance where yes I I get a recharge of the battery from the uh the eyeballs that I have on my work and the adulation but I also have this me time and this sort of soul filling that's only for me that um I find just as important you know when I'm out doing a job that is that has purpose and that I feel ticks ticks my personal boxes um then you know I'm just as happy coming home from a you know 16 hour shoot um knackered but feel like I've I've done what I was meant to do um and it took many years to get to that level where it wasn't just all for other people or what I thought other people found impressive you know for for a long time, um, I was chasing a dream job at a particular radio station, which is sort of the holy grail of of all um, 
broadcasting and I, I got there and I, I did the gig and I realized that actually um, the gig was making me feel more anxious than it was making me feel like I had reached some milestone. So I kind of made it an executive decision to um, not put as much energy into that and more into what was I guess in the public eye seen as maybe lower level or less shiny but for me was absolutely what I felt my calling was which was more about meeting amazing people with stories to tell rather than um, the kind of shiny shiny thing that I thought everyone wanted me to do. So interesting, like when we set goals, quite often we don't think what happens when we get there and what happens when we get there and we don't like it. Mm. It's really interesting. Can we go back a little bit with your career then and and like start at the beginning and, and you're setting out into the broadcast world and having a YouTube channel? What was or who was the Riyadh of, of that time? Mm. Um, I I felt like I was battling with the fact that I was a natural born attention seeker uh, even before I had all of the invalidation and the the struggling with my identity I always would set up little puppet shows in my uh, living room and, and force my parents to watch them even though they were shite and you know uh, just always the the trying to make the adults at the you know family barbecue laugh and just really having this uh, love of the art of communication and the art of entertainment and uh, I, I remember being at uh, family parties and barbecues as I said and I would be maybe nine ten years old and the other parents that were there would encourage me to go out the front and play with the kids the other kids and my mother and father knew that I didn't really have any interest in that I was getting such a buzz from just being around the adult table, listening to ad- adult conversations that I didn't really understand. And so my parents played the role of um, protectors where they would back me up and go, no, no, he's okay here. And of course, you know, they adults wanted to talk about sex and uh, pl- politics and issues in their marriages. And um, my parents were okay with me hearing that because they knew it made me feel happy. Um, and I would occasionally chime in with something inappropriate. They'd all laugh and and that was that. So I think that that's where the love for communication, questioning and entertainment came from. And it, it kind of went from there into um, dying, dying, dying to work at my local radio station, East Coast FM uh, in Bray. And I, I, I think I did a I did like a, wor- a one week work experience there. And I just got that kind of bug that I think every broadcaster got where you see the red light go on and you get goosebumps up and down your body. And it's, it's you just can't put a, um, you just can't describe the feeling. And so I, I went online, dial up internet, and I started researching how can I make my own station at home, um, a, a pirate station. And so I, I got on eBay and I, I bought the kit from China it was, uh, I think, disclosed uh, through customs as a gift through them. Not me. I wasn't, you know, being too illegal at that stage. And I remember about 10 weeks later, completely forgot that I'd ordered this antenna and transmitter and wires and all sorts. And we got a ding dong on the door and this guy handed me all this stuff. And I was all of a sudden creating 
my own broadcast destiny illegally. <laughs> and I, I set up the antenna um, in my uh, front room and I remember plugging it into my little laptop and I played the B-52's Love Shack. I think it was the only song I had on, on my laptop at the time. And I tuned the uh, transmitter into like some 98.1 or, or something. And I ran to the front of my estate with my little radio and I could hear my own station for the first time. And I just like, it was blowing my mind. And anyway, my dad was amazing. He he put the antenna on the top of our roof and um, every day after school, I would come back and I would I would broadcast on what I called the Hook 100 FM. And I was DJ RK, very careful to not put the real name out there, should the guards be listening. And that was the beginning, really. That's insane. I never knew this about you, Riyad, <laughs> because we met at a Dublin radio station. And when I started out, you know, it was radio, it was TV, it was print, and that was broadcast. And then mm. the whole landscape began to change as social media grew. Mm. And you came in at the very cusp of that. And I remember like watching you, you were filming things you were doing, you were constantly making videos and uploading them to YouTube at a time where YouTube was only really getting going. So when did your eyes begin to open to the possibility of that? It was really, it was a funny one because I actually, from my memory, began YouTube before the radio stuff. And what happened was I... I was watching YouTube videos as uh, just as a viewer uh, to get entertainment. And I came across these uh, gay guys in America that were making these video logs. That's what they were called at the time. And they were just in their college dorms talking to the camera and being so candid about their identity and about what they were doing for that particular day. And, oh, my God, I'm dating this guy and he's so cute. And I just found it so inspiring and uh, uplifting that I you know I was still I think partially in the closet I think I was out to friends but not to family but here were these young gorgeous looking gay men around my age that were so open and, and proud the p word was about their identity and I thought well maybe one day I can be too maybe I have to live there to do that but anyway it doesn't matter because I'm getting this uh, freeing energy vicariously through this dial-up internet into Bray from LA piped into this you know laptop and I, I I it was giving me life literally and so it got to the point where I thought hang on you know these guys are good but I could be good and I could do this too and so I went around to um Paris City and I bought this really shitty cheap I think it must have been 10 quid uh a webcam with a microphone built into it and I had Windows Movie Maker and I started just to play around and make these little skits pretending to be my mom and uh, doing this sort of back and forth um, comedy stuff. I put it up online, Went it went on Bebo and I went into school the next day and somehow my uh, classmates had seen it and I was getting this uh, praise from people that would normally um, slag me for the way I spoke or slag me for the way I dressed, they were saying that it was really funny. And I was getting this huge boost from this um, positive reinforcement and 
okay, so this is turning me from the attacked to the, uh, I don't know, uh, appreciated kind of funny kid, the clown. And so I leaned in, I leant into that. I was like, I am, um, you know, getting something from this. And, um, and then from there, I, I was making videos quite regularly and I began pretty soon to get the trolling um from faceless nameless profiles um i i most of the time i think from abroad and they were saying things like um you are a filthy dirty um faggot you um need to do these awful things to yourself um we know where you live we're going to get you um you're sick oh it goes on and on and on initially it didn't bother me but then slowly but surely I began to believe what they were saying. You know, I was about 15, 16 and I began to think, well, maybe I am um, an abomination. Maybe I am sick. Maybe I do need to do these awful things to myself. And I, anyway, I went to the guards uh, privately without my parents knowing because the very, this is the problem with kids that are in the closet, be they online or offline. The minute they say to their parents or their loved ones that they need help because they're being called a queer, a faggot or whatever, they're by default outing themselves prematurely. So they're in, they're between a rock and a hard place where they're being attacked, but they can't ask for help, which I believe is why the, the self-harm and, and suicide rates are so high in that specific young queer group. So anyway, I went to the guards. They didn't really understand what the internet was. They are, Their advice to me was go offline and stop making videos and it will go away. So that's what I did, Claire. I went offline for about seven years and my channel, my fledgling channel, just lay there dormant, gathering dust. And I think that was the point where I went from this digital guy to traditional broadcast and set up this pirate radio station. And when I think about it now, at 30 years old, you know, 15 years later, it's because the type of broadcasting that I was doing was now one way. I could throw myself out there and not have anything back. And so I went backwards in terms of technology for a while because I needed my outlet, but I also needed to not have the uh, attack. It always shocks me, even in a more open society where we talk more and we hear more of how much of a struggle it can be mm. to be part of the LGBTQ plus community. I think much as so many of us want to be allies or want to be a coalition, we, we don't understand what it's like to have to shout and struggle to just be who you are. Mm. It's a funny one because it really shapes the um, person that you then become in adulthood, even post finding yourself, learning to love yourself, being proud of yourself and getting a partner and all those sort of tentpole milestone moments that we all strive for it's still even today I see um the trauma uh, present itself daily it can be um my struggle to uh be around straight men on my own even lovely lovely straight men even some straight male family members because I somewhere deep down associate that sort of um, masculine energy with potential uh, attack and humiliation 
and I have to work on on that uh, and I am or it can present itself in um you know you might be going to a, a work event or a shoot and and you're kind of asked to dress in a certain way and um that can be very triggering because it, maybe it goes against uh your identity um and how you want to present you know maybe you're you're invited to a wedding and it's black tie and you have to wear tux and and actually just that in itself makes you feel um like a traitor to the person that you've become because it just doesn't sit right with you to to um present in that way and and i think you know a lot of people when they hear me speak in this way and they haven't been through what i've been through they can you know naturally just maybe roll their eyes and feel like oh for god's sake we just get over yourself uh and i get that i get, i do get that um but i think you can only truly know how it feels um when you've been through it and 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 the end product is that you end up moving through life constantly with a, a an ever so slight guard up a guard of self preservation and a guard of um that kind of tries to uh do right by the young man who uh didn't have the strength or the voice who now does um whilst also being the yes person so that you don't miss out on work as a freelance broadcaster and always trying to be the yes person so that you don't uh give your community at large a bad name as someone who is you know a, a public face uh, you know who's part of the community so um you're you're playing a juggling act but i think how how you make it work in your favor is by trying to see the benefits that come with that and they can be a superpower for empathy because you've been through a lot of shit and you can see when someone else has gone through a lot of shit and in turn give them help and it also allows you to um see things uh, from a different angle you know being an outside the box thinker and um bring that lived experience to whatever you do good and bad because i mean it shouldn't be that way you know you no young person should be made to feel that or go through that but that's something that i love that you always say is that it has been a gift to you in so many ways because so many people also sleepwalk through their lives um without ever really digging deep into themselves emotionally and and you know really trying to get to know themselves and you've done that because of the the trauma that you you've been through and that helps you stand stronger but yeah i think it's it, you know it's the best way for you to have to look at it is that it gives you that superpower of empathy yeah and and i think you know it is it is very easy uh when you don't have to um to go through life like you say an autopilot or just sort of um i wouldn't say coasting but you you're not forced to look at yourself um and and uh, ask those questions of what what does matter to me what here uh do i need in my life and what what can i let go of and and it speeds up a lot of things like you know uh partners uh that maybe aren't that you know fulfilling to you or friendships or jobs and i i do see this in a lot of uh you know the queer people that are in my life friends that they <sighs> I just love being in their company because when you talk to someone who's had to do the work uh you just you you vibe on a different level 
and I find I wrote this in my book. It's it's this thing of you can be on holiday on the other side of the planet, um, and you come across uh, another LGBTQ plus person, and it's almost an instant uh, accelerated friendship because the the sort of journey that you've both been on is nine times out of ten going to be very similar, and uh, it's a kind of a, a sorority, a fraternity, or whatever. It's 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 a ready-made uh, chosen family. And that, that is one of the other positives that I always, always think about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when did you feel ready to go back on YouTube and handle the trolling in a different way? Hmm. Um, it took a, it. I had to learn to love myself because when I was getting the trolling, I didn't like myself, really. I, I was still on that journey and, and the trolling was either stopping the journey towards self-love or even pushing me backwards and making me, like I said, question maybe what they're saying is true. So I had to go and do the work and, and the work took, uh, it, it's a, it's a, you can't speed it up really. It's just time. Um, it's going to pride marches. It's, um, you know, me sneaking off to the George on a Saturday night and, um, going to, uh, just be around my people and see, you know, how wonderful they are. And then I think, um, after I had come out, uh, to family, um, and to friends and to myself, I, I didn't care what they said anymore. I'd built up this thick skin. And actually what was bothering me more was people um, giving out about the quality of the mic I was using or the lighting was shite or the edit was weird. Uh, and that really, I was like, oh no. And and when I realized that that transition had been made from not caring what they said about me as a person, but me as a, as a producer, I thought, okay, that's actually great work. Well done, Riyadh, we've reached a new level. Um, and so I, I went back uh, many, many years later. I think, it, like I said, it was about about seven, and uh, it was a completely uh, life changing journey because by that point the world was online, and uh, online content was very much a mainstay of our daily daily life. You know, viral videos were out there, and I knew that I needed to come back with a bang. I needed to kind of go. Hey, remember me? You probably don't, but I'm one of the guys that was here initially, and um, I need your attention. So I, I started making these quite um, 
punchy <laughs> videos, fish out of water videos, I called them, where one in particular that really sort of uh, shot my channel out there was I, I got my mother to read my grinder messages on camera. And I thought, uh, this, there's no way that people won't click on this. It's just gold. She didn't want it to be out there, but I told her she could have edit approval and she agreed. And um, that was when we were working together that that went out. And overnight it was it was on BuzzFeed. It was on Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair, BBC, CNN, the entertainment pages. They had all run it. And um, I attribute that video to me now living and working in the UK. It all started from there, that one video. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty thankful for that experience. I urge anybody who hasn't gone back to your back catalogue of YouTube <laughs> videos to watch anything that involves your parents. They are the best. I'm so glad that they were part of your catapulting into the success because they really have your back. And I think that's incredible. And they're as open and honest as you are in them. It's very, very special to watch. It's special, Claire, but I've created monsters. The two of them are complete media horse I'm, and they wouldn't mind me saying it either I mean I, I was on uh, the phone with my mother the other day we're uh, planning to launch a podcast together in the new year and we're you know just thrashing out what what that could look like and she just says to me on the phone oh Riyadh will you just make me famous <laughs> just like oh my god the difference from the woman who was crying down the phone because she the video was going viral and she thought her career was over to now begging me to make her famous, quote unquote, it, it what a what a journey we've all been on, um, and so I I feel very lucky that you know the these two legends are not only parents but friends that are up for up for the ride, you know. Well, you've used that channel to lean into what would be considered uncomfortable, often taboo topics, like the example you've just given there, but it, it became a, a vehicle to to help others. So I'm sure the trolling continued, but you were getting, as you said earlier, more positive stuff back that it was actually making a difference. Yeah. It, and, and it actually does um, change your outlook when you see that 99% of the, the comments are positive. Um, it, it makes the bad ones kind of feel less um, important and less worthy of your attention. And you, you begin to actually humanize and personify the blank profile and the person that lives behind it you think to yourself hang on a minute why are you out of all of these people choosing to see this piece of content in such a negative um disgusted way like what what is it that's going on in your life that's implored you to click on this video which is very clearly signposted as something that you apparently hate um invest the time to watch it and then spew the venom out underneath oh wow something bad is happening in your life and i feel sorry for you not in a um na 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 you've got a shit life and i don't f you way but actually in a truly caring way and that is for me um the surrendering of um caring about the negativity it's it's letting it go and actually being an empathetic human being and um and and being able to to continue on with what you need to do in spite of the uh perceived hate 
that is out there for you because you know it's not real. And it, I mean, it also shapes who you are and what your voice is because it's not your job to change people's opinions on you or bring them into the fold. And it solidified for you that your role was to be a voice for the people who were feeling misunderstood and, and not seen and, and try and give them the confidence that you wished you had when mm-hmm. you were younger. Yeah. I mean, I, I every time I, I edited a video and I hit upload, I thought in my head of all of those uh, amazing young gay uh, YouTube creators that I was watching and and what they had done for me without knowing. And I thought, well, this is such a gift that this democratizing platform exists where I don't need to um, win over a channel controller or commissioner from some broadcaster in order to spread the message and spread the love and to enhance my employability because that was the other side it was you know this channel for me was a living breathing portfolio of here's who I am and what I can do for you and and it did do that it ended up getting me my own um, BBC documentary series that was where they saw the 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 I guess the talent, I, I hate using that word, but they saw that the, there was a person there that could hold um, something like that. So it was uh, it was a kind of the opposite of a vicious circle. It was a circle of joy. <laughs> it was helping me find myself. It was helping my parents understand that, you know, they wanted to be out there, public people and and have fun. It helped the, the, the viewers who were struggling with their identities and it ultimately it helped me um, chase the career and dream that I always wanted to have. Um, and so I'll always, always, always thank YouTube for giving me that opportunity. And and, and I think it, it's given a lot of um, talented people around the world the chance to kind of uh, design their own destinies without the asking for permission. Um, and that's just wonderful. Um, I do want to get into um, your career a little bit further and, and moving to London because it's more brave and brilliant stuff from you. But I want to talk about your book. Yay, you're gay. Now what? I mean, that was huge, Riyadh, to have your own book and to have such a personal book. Tell me a little bit about that. So I um I have never really thought about becoming a writer and have always found the uh, act of writing really challenging. I, I think that's why I probably decided to go into this side of media rather than, you know, print. And um, I, you know, was doing all this content on on TV podcasts and online here in the UK. I think I was here for about two years, maybe three. And I one day got an email from a uh, publisher and she was pitching this idea to me they had done a book called the girl guide um which was um an amazing book sort of for young uh, prepubescent and pubescent girls teaching them about uh, their bodies changing and um life emotions relationships all of these things and they wanted to make a specific uh, gay uh, cis male version of that book and um i <laughs> ignore the email I thought are they mad why no I would never do something like that and I didn't ignore it in a rude way I just thought this is hilarious there are 58,000 people out there that would be way more suited to, to this they'll find them instead anyway thankfully they persisted this publisher and they wrote to my agent who then said look 
let's just have a chat and have a meeting and just hear them out and see. So we did the chat. And I think by the end of it, I just thought, actually, if not me, then who? Because I, what what I've lived through and the sort of conclusions I've come to about me, my identity and who I am really sort of work with with the idea. And so I agreed and it took me <laughs> way longer than it should have. It probably should have taken about six months. It took a year, year and a half. But I wanted to make it right. I wanted to do it in my own time and to only write when I was in what's known as the author's flow state, where it's just the the, the good shit is just coming out of you and you, you, your fingers can't keep up with the type, with what's coming out of your brain, basically. Um, And so... uh. I, I poured my heart out into it. I my personal stories. I I, I gathered amazing um, anecdotes from followers all over the world, um, and also some well known people as well who were so kindly uh, giving me their their time, like Stephen Fry and Dr. Range, and um, I, I I've got this little pink wonder on my bookshelf now, and uh, it's I still I think that came out in twenty eighteen. And I, I still, even at this weekend, I was um, on a night out and I had two or three um, early 20s gay guys come up to me saying that they had just bought the book and that they're getting so much from it. And of course, I love it. It's great. But the the, the community and, and language and, and what we're fighting for changes on a, a weekly basis. And that is a good thing. It means that we're moving in the right direction. So I look back on my book from 2018 or my uh, BBC series from 2017. And I think, wow, that's aged. Yes, there's always going to be gold in it that I am super proud of. But there, there are certain parts of it that don't fit 2021 or 2022 anymore. And so um, that's a kind of a new thing that I have to think about as I create work that uh, is kind of solidified in time. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I did it. And it's made me realize now that although it takes me time, I am a writer, I can write. And I'm now, um, in the process of, uh, preparing my next book, which would be fun. And how has the fight evolved? Like you say, in a way that's, that's positive. So what are the positive? What has changed on the landscape for good and what still needs to change? So I think um, the fight that we're really um, on the cusp of now is the fight for um, our transgender siblings who are going through what the gay community went through maybe uh, 20 years ago, even 50 years ago, depending on where you are in the world. Um, It's like they're the forgotten group. um, And it's like, you know, all of the good stuff that's happened to the LGB community as They've been lumped into that as, oh, sure, you should be delighted. But actually, their struggle is a very specific one that maybe LGB people don't necessarily have to go through. We do have an overlap, of course, but their struggle is different and needs to be seen as such. So, you know, in terms of language, I think it's amazing that we've got terms like cisgender, which for those that don't know, is a person that... um is born into the gender identity um, that they uh, identify as. So they they were assigned the identity that that they feel fits them. Uh, so I w- would be cisgender, you would be cisgender. Um, uh, and it's basically the opposite of transgender. 
And so, uh, and, and pronouns, you know, if, if we look at the digital platforms like Facebook and Instagram, the fact that we can now publicly have those uh, pronouns, he, her, they, them, uh, all out there to see is brilliant. And and it actually, it took me um, as, you know, an LGBT person time to understand why that was important. And the reason why I had the privilege of seeing it as a non-issue was because I, I wasn't facing a, a gender uh, battle. I thought, uh, well, I know what I am. Why does everyone else need to know what I am? And it's because if you move through the world as someone that's constantly being misgendered every day, multiple times a day, you're being invalidated. You're being told that who you are isn't what the rest of the world sees you as. And it can really, really damage your mental health. And so having a, a public marker out there so no one has to question it or ask all the time it can be a hugely uh, liberating and, and empowering thing. But the, the issues that we still face are far and wide and again are very geographically dependent. Um, there are many, many countries around the world that are still uh, battling with old, uh, outdated homophobic transphobic uh, laws that are from colonial era uh, rule you know britain having uh, power over countries like swaziland um barbados which recently uh, gained independence uh, many of the caribbean countries uh, many african nations um you know laws that are and aren't upheld but the fact that they even exist give um power to uh, homophobic acts transphobic hate crimes you know if you know that your country um has a, an un if you have a law in your country that isn't upheld that says uh having a consensual homosexual act with another person can land you in prison for life even though it's not upheld it tells the homophobes and transphobes and bigots that you know actually it's probably okay to attack that person or call them a name on the street so and then you got Chechnya with it with these um so-called concentration camps that uh are imprisoning and 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 torturing and at times murdering LGBT people hunting them down through dating apps and social media sites. You've got uh, Russia with uh LGBT propaganda laws so that if you bring up anything that can be seen as promoting the LGBT agenda quote unquote you can be um punished for that the list goes on and on and so uh, even here in the uk conversion therapy is being consulted on they're questioning what whether and how they might bring in a ban rather than just bringing in a ban so um my feeling on it is if we don't keep up the heat keep up the pressure and the fight we very very easily either pause and stay stagnant where we are, or even worse, regress and move backwards. So it's it's our um, duty as member of, members of the community and as allies to um, keep that good fight moving on, not just for us that live in a, a quite a safe bubble um, in Ireland and the UK, but also, more importantly, for those who don't. And what do you make of the resistance? Because I like to think that we are in a more open society and that things have, have moved on. But maybe that's just the circles that I mix within. And I mean, you know, there are some of the atrocities that you're mentioning now. There are human rights violations happening globally. 
But you hear a lot of people on the other scale who just kind of raise their eyes and roll their eyes and say, oh, God, you can't say anything these days. What do you make of that argument? Um, it's controversial, um, probably even for me to say, but I, I, when I'm coming up against any sort of disagreement or um, difficulty in, in, in communicating with someone on issues like this, my, my position and my angle is always to come at it from a place of understanding. I try to put myself in their shoes. Okay, so why are they rolling their eyes? Okay, so they're rolling their eyes because everything that they've known up until now is being challenged. Their their idea of the world that they live in and, and the, the safety that they had and how they could communicate and express themselves is being challenged. And that is hard for someone who's never been challenged. That is hard for someone that's never lived in a world where they have to edit, contort or change who they are in order to survive. And And so I come at it from that point of view and I come at it from a place not of anger, but of education and understanding. And so I try to say, you know, um, the small ask really is, is, is it's really minuscule compared to what we have had to live through in order to just be. So please just try to do your best. And what I say on the flip side to, to members of the community that are, you know, sometimes maybe too quick to judge, too quick to attack is, look, pick your battles. If an individual is blatantly, maliciously trying to cause harm, trying to um, disregard, invalidate and, and cause, you know, you trauma, then F them, basically. And let's let's fight. Let's get them um, to a place where maybe they, they can understand. Uh, maybe we've got to be a bit more forceful. Maybe the, the gentle education route isn't helping. But by and large, what I find is people out there who make a mistake aren't trying to cause harm. And I think that we are, you know, fighting a losing battle if we attack the ones that are trying and make an honest mistake. So I'm very forgiving, very understanding and, and actually get such a thrill when I see someone make a mistake and say sorry. Um, and that could be family members even, you know, um. So it's 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 a nuanced battle, but it's one that I think needs to come from a place of um, uh, patience um, and and understanding. God, I want to replay that answer again right now and listen to it. That was just gorgeous and I think you're so right because ultimately all of the struggles in this world come down to equality and a lack of empathy and compassion and I just think it shows great strength that even within it yourself you're thinking well how can I expect empathy back from not going to give it out totally um, you know it's it's incredible but it's you know as you say it's it takes years to kind of kind of get there and it's not fair to just expect people who are marginalized time and time again to just come back with empathy so it's nuanced how can we be better allies then in society you also wrote a gorgeous essay for a book called we can do better than this and that was your your topic so I'd love you to try and put into words how we can do better yeah it's 
I think allyship um, in general is the greatest gift a person can give to another human being or group of human beings because it is um, on the front, on the top level, quite a selfless thing to do. Um, and it serves uh, the greater good of of our um, species, really. I know that sounds very lofty and big, but allyship um, isn't just for the LGBTQ plus community. It isn't just for people of color. It isn't just for people with disabilities. It is for everyone and anyone. And, and actually, when you dig a bit deeper into the benefits of it, it does help and uplift the ally as much as it does the marginalized group that they're trying to help too. And so how do you do it? Um, and there isn't a, a hard and fast rule book, but there are some principles that I think ring true for every uh, flavor of allyship, if you will. And that is um, listen, 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 listen to the person with the lived experience because they know. And even if you don't agree with them, ask questions and try to understand why maybe their point of view doesn't match yours why ask yourself why are you finding what they're saying maybe difficult to digest at times why are you feeling like you want to push back and question what they're saying um without actually doing that so listening is more important than chiming in with your opinion because actually your opinion a lot of the time in these early conversations doesn't matter and I know that's hard to hear but your opinion can come later once the listening has finished and then what I'd say is um try to be uh, an ally not only in front of the person that needs you to be an ally, but more importantly, when they're not there to see it. Because when you're doing it in the privacy of a group of friends, when you're standing up for your transgender friend because someone made um, uh, an offensive joke that was malicious and that wasn't just a joke, and you're trying to educate them, when the trans person isn't there, that is the opposite of performative uh, inauthentic allyship because we don't need that we need real shit right now okay um and and also it, it does such a service to the relationship that you have with that uh, individual because when you meet them for the next time you don't need to tell them what you did but you know the deep down in your heart that you want to protect them and you want to help the the conversation move forward because allyship is about a ripple effect you know you you educate one person you educate a hundred people because that learning carries on and on and on. And the individuals that you touch with the allyship that you're bringing is so much more powerful than what these people will hear in the media, what they'll hear from politicians, what they'll see in legislative changes. Because like with any type of advertising or or, um, marketing or PR, we always listen to the individuals that we trust and our friends and our family that are around us before we listen to what we're hearing from you know, the world at large, you know, I will absolutely buy that amazing um, electric toothbrush because my best friend says it's amazing rather than me watching the ad that's running after some show. I'm nodding emphatically as you're speaking and I've goosebumps Um, and you're right. That's 
goes for all cross sections of society. I did hear um, an author being interviewed recently, Emma Dabry. She's an Irish author. Oh, yeah, and I love her, her book is What White People Can Do Next. And she obviously talks about racial inequalities. And she likes the term coalition because she thinks sometimes allyship has, a, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing her, she says that sometimes allyship has a bit of a bang of charity off it that, you know, these poor mm. people need our help and aren't we so amazing to reach our hand out and, and help them up. And I do think we should have coalition in our mind a little bit more because that brings about equality, which is at the centre of it all. That is so amazing. I, I, like, I, I know Emma um, and she is such a wonderful, intelligent mind. And and that, what you just said, proves exactly um, how her mind works. It's language is so important and I don't think we think about that enough I have only been using the term ally because I haven't had another word and I've not heard what you've just said uh from Emma before and now I'm going to use that so here we have a microcosm of just how amazing these conversations can be because now I will take that and use that and pass that along like the the golden nugget that it is so um and I do, I agree with that, actually. Now I'm thinking about it. There is that kind of feeling that when I speak of allyship or I'm asking someone to come along on the journey that I, that I am, thank you so much. My God, this is amazing. I, I appreciate this so much. Rather than it just being the um, expected default that should be there as a modern society, you know, that why should allyship be a choice that someone um, opts in or out of like being an organ donor? It, it, you know, if we're going to move forward as a species, surely that should be where we all begin. And if you're not an ally, then that's something that you opt out of that. It, it's that's the, that's the conscious decision is deciding that you are not going to be part of this amazing thing. And so I am hopeful about um, us again, as I say this all the time, as a species, because it is, it's a collective thing. When I have conversations like this with you, Claire, um, and when I see that podcasts like yours exist and um, people listen to them, because we are more good than we are bad. I know that's quite a basic thing to say, but I, I, I think when I look at the world at large and I look at the you know, two steps forward, one step back uh, routine of LGBTQ rights around the world. I, I know it hurts my heart when I see another country implement some sort of a ban on, on, on rights of, for people like me. But I do think that we are actually, by and large, going in the right direction. I am impatient. It is slower than I want it to be. But um, I am excited for the generations that are alive beyond um, when I'm here, or when you're here, because it is it is going to be good. Um, so long as the environment <laughs> is saved, of course, otherwise we won't have a planet. But um, yeah, I, yeah I, look, it's another battle. Yeah. It's absolutely another battle. But I think, you know, as you've indicated there, it's about having a willingness to evolve, to change and that be your opinion too, you know, and be and be open. That's what a truly open mind is. I can let you go with asking you a little bit about life and work in London. I think it's because 
Is it Dick Whittington? Is he the guy that just strapped all his belongings in a handkerchief and a <laughs> stick and, and headed off? I think anyone who just heads off, you're like, wow, mm. what look, look what you're doing. Uh, you know, and especially in the, the world of broadcast, London is, is such a Oz type place to yeah. go. And you've done so incredibly well over there working with the BBC, as you said, um, your own documentary series, working with the one show. You won MasterChef, for God's sake, Riyadh. I'm sure it hasn't all been linear like that. What has the experience been like for you? Uh, yeah, it's I, I'm almost six years here and I can't believe that. Um, it's a it's a weird one because any Irish person that leaves home never fully feels whole um, when they're not home. But I had to make a call. Um, I had a dream. I had aspirations. And no matter how hard I pushed, no matter how um, uh, motivated I was, uh, I didn't feel like my um, those aspirations were being met at home. And and that was for a number of reasons. And so I I felt like I had I had a duty to myself to just try it. And sure, look, if it doesn't work, then you can go back. And I had uh, the most amazing, had and have the most amazing best friend here in London, Irish guy called Paddy, who um, has been my security blanket, my home from home, my shoulder to cry on, my, oh, he's also in media. So also my um, professional advisor. And and as I think I've been become that for him too. And I think without that, it never would have happened. And uh, it has not been easy. Um, and I do do that thing where I, I I don't get a gig that I've gone for or I've sort of fallen out of favor with a particular show or a broadcaster just because someone else comes along. And the, the, the industry is, is so fast like that, that in order to stop myself from going down a hole of complete and utter um, <laughs> uh complete and utter uh, destruction and thinking I'll just move back I need to go home I just think back and I go look look how far you've come even in the last year and and you have to keep doing that and I, I don't know if it's an Irish thing I don't know if it's a media thing but I I just always feel this um, conscious sense of appreciation anytime I'm working and I just I just feel like how lucky are you to be privileged to be given the chance to broadcast your message, your art to however many people, even if it's two people, like when I was on the radio and in my attic with no one listening, you are so lucky to be doing this. So I, um, it's not a linear journey. Um, it's a slow one, but I now at 30 years old, I finally gotten to the point where I'm enjoying the slowness of the journey. I'm en enjoying taking the foot off the gas of the perpetual kind of must reach next step of, you know, th this um, this uh, battle because uh, it's not a battle. It's it's a fun game, and as long as I have enough gigs going on to keep my soul recharged, enough money in the bank to pay the bills, I am happy out. I've got the flat, I've got the cat, I've got the fella, I've got the gig. So I don't need to be doing massive, massive things all the time. And that is liberating. And so um, 
I, I think moving here was the best decision I ever made. And uh, I thank six years ago, Riyadh, for taking that scary, scary jump. And uh, I'm just I'm just seeing, you know, where it goes next. Um, it's been amazing to see there was so many times I've been proud of you. You know, and it's sometimes even the little things that you might post, like obviously there's times like the the Gay Times cover, lifting the MasterChef trophy, like (laughs) they're all brilliant, shiny things. But you posted recently how you were the the main presenter for a premiere on Mm. the red carpet and how you remembered being on the other side in that scrum with all the microphones with everybody else. Mm. And you said, one day I want to be there. And you really take a moment to say, when you are there and and appreciate it and see it for for what it is, I think it's been amazing to watch. What are oh. your hopes for the future? Oh, um, well, they used to be a lot more clear cut and and sort of like strong until I got to this kind of euphoric place of just enjoying the journey. But of course, there are a few shiny things out there that I have always wanted um, for myself. I mean, I would I would love to do um, more. Uh, meaningful documentaries that have this sort of balance of laughter and learning. Um, that's always been kind of my thing. You know, can you finish watching a Riyadh program and feel like you've had a giggle, but you've also walked away with something else in your head? I, I'd love my own talk show one day. Um, I don't know what that would look like, but just to have, I, I don't know, maybe it's egotistical, but your name above the door. This is the you show. And to really put your own stamp on it, and um, that would just be a dream come true. And to produce that through a production company that I own um, uh, would be amazing. Um, and beyond the career stuff, I want a beautiful home, a few chickens, a couple of dogs, <laughs> and maybe a holiday home um, back in, uh, in Wicklow. And I, that's it, really. Yeah, just to be happy, really. Well, I have no doubt you will achieve it all and more. (laughs) And I can't wait to watch your talk show. Will you save me a seat in the live audience? I will save you a seat in the guest's chair (laughs) and you better not turn me down. I'll have the wine ready for you in the green room. Because Claire, I know it's, you know, you've been interviewing me, but I have to say it. You have always been, and I know you're Irish like me and you can't take a compliment, but just try. You've always been a huge, huge, huge inspiration to me since I watched you on your radio talk show being this intelligent, charismatic, empathetic broadcaster that could anchor some of the most difficult conversations. And I, I you know, as a, as a young fledgling uh, media person, really, really looked up to that. So I'm thrilled that you and I have through the years stayed friends and that um, we get to do stuff like this. So keep rocking on, sis. And same. And that means the absolute world to me. As you know, I absolutely adore you and all that you stand for. Riyadh Caliph, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.